MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 22. Woo-hoo, 22 Woo. of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, June 16th. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill. And I'm Andrew Torres. And we have a fantastic show for you today. I have mm-hmm. finally gotten uh, Allison on board with doing some baseball law on this show as well. Um, <laughs> but... First, as always, we need to thank our patrons who support the show over at patreon.com slash aisle45pod for as little as a buck an episode. You haven't done that yet. Consider doing that now, right? Great way to say you love this collaboration. You want this partnership to continue. Yes, I I need your validation to be with Andrew. It's true. Uh, And and, (laughs) kidding, you're fantastic. (laughs) And a big thank you to our new patrons this week. P. Taylor, Mario Mudek, Adrian Wing, and Cadillac, Michigan, is truly the Volvo of Cadillacs. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. Anyway, uh, thank you to Kevin Grimes, Chris Lukowski, at Koi Zero, and John Brown did nothing wrong. You can join these fine people over at patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. And now, on with the show. Ah, yes. <clears throat> Block number one. This is a, this is a good one. <laughs> oh, this is good. <laughs> We open the show today with my favorite, Amy Berman, Judge Jackson, if you're nasty, and her response to the Department of Justice motion for a stay on releasing the second half of that Bill Barr memo from March 2019, while they prepare, the DOJ prepares to appeal her decision, saying you got to hand it all over. Her response is well thought out. It goes pretty much as expected. She starts out by discussing stays and injunctions, saying a stay or an injunction pending appeal is an extraordinary remedy. She, she says this I, every time somebody is replying to a stay, they cite this. Yep. Um, it is an intrusion into the ordinary process of administration and judicial review. And accordingly, it is not a matter of right. This is not something you have a right to, even if irreparable injury might otherwise result to the appellant. Instead, a stay is an exercise of judicial discretion to be based upon specific circumstances of the case. The moving party bears the burden, a case of justifying why the court should grant the remedy based upon consideration of the four factors. (laughs) The four factors. Andrew, what are those four factors? Yeah, so these are the factors that come into play when you're seeking injunctive relief. Remember that... In general, our justice system believes that civil wrongs can be reduced to money. 
So that's the way to think about it, right, is if it's something that you can be recompensed for if you're wrong down the line, then the court will just say, OK, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to grant injunctive relief. I'm not going to tell people what to do. Um, if you win, great. Get get money, get recompensed. Uh, if not, no. But uh, but otherwise, we're you know, we're not going to do anything. Um, when you want the court to issue an injunction, the court will balance four different factors here. One whether the stay applicant has made a strong showing uh, that it is likely to succeed on the merits. That is the likelihood of success prong. Two, whether the applicant will be irreparably injured absent a stay. That's the irreparable harm prong that I just alluded to. Three, whether the issuance of the stay will substantially injure the other parties interested in the proceeding. And four, where the public interest lies, right? Um, and the court weighs each one of these considerations in determining whether or not to issue injunctive relief or as here as stay. Yeah. And she starts with the merits <laughs> prong, right? This is pretty damning stuff. She says of this Department of Justice's motion, quote, the motion to stay does not identify a serious flaw in the legal standard applied by the court, and it does not provide grounds to conclude that Department of Justice is likely to succeed in challenging the court's ruling that it failed to meet its burden to establish that the bar memo was properly withheld under Exemption 5. Exemption 5 being one of those FOIA exemptions. Right. This is specifically the one that uh, the Bar Department of Justice cited when withholding the entirety of the memo. Yep. And uh, and the plaintiff here is Crew Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. And on the flip side, <laughs> Judge Jackson pretty much agrees with all of their arguments, right? She says, quote, the concern that led to this court's ruling was that in its attempt to shield the bar memo from public view, the DOJ inaccurately described the decision-making process that was supposedly underway. As to this issue, the court generally agrees with plaintiff Cruz's analysis of the flaws in the arguments advanced in the motion to stay. And, and again, I, I just have to tell you how unusual that is, right? It is, it is I, I cannot recall the last time uh, I saw a court grant a stay, but tell the parties, we think the party opposing the stay is has the the substantially better argument on likelihood of success on appeal. Mm -hmm. And she goes on to explain that uh, later on when she gets to one of the other prongs. Uh, but she drills down here. Mm. She goes on for a couple pages, several pages on this particular merits prong. She clarifies further saying the court did not rule as it did because the declarations were, quote unquote, confusing. <laughs> It found the declarations and the justification in the agency's pleadings for invoking Exemption 5 to be misleading. Yeah. So she's like, no, no, Department of Justice under Garland, I'm not confused. You, They misled me. And the department, she goes on to say, the department chose not to tell the court the purpose of the memorandum or subject it addressed at all. And no amount of apologizing for imprecision in the language it did use can cure the impact of that fundamental omission. So she's basically saying to the DOJ, this DOJ, hey, all all of your apologizing for for the previous guy's Department of Justice getting it wrong doesn't make up for the omission yep. as to why you wanted to withhold this and the misleading, the misleading nature of it. She goes on to say DOJ would have the court believe that it did not mean to suggest the attorney general was making a final decision about whether 
uh, to initiate or decline actual prosecution when it said he received the memo prior to his final decision on the issue addressed in the memo, whether the facts would support initiating or declining the prosecution of the president. Yeah. That's very specific. Yeah, absolutely. And then and then look, she gets to the heart of her issue with the merits of, of the DOJ's argument saying, so what did DOJ say in reply? Did it explain then that what it meant to say was that the bar memo contained deliberations and advice related to the different question of whether, given the agency's view that there was a constitutional barrier to an indictment, the attorney general should offer his prosecutorial judgment as to the strength of the evidence anyway, and if so, what that assessment should be? No. In its reply, it doubled down. It said the bar memo was, quote, prepared for the purpose of giving legal advice and analysis to the attorney general for use in his deliberations as to whether the facts set forth in volume two of the Mueller report would support initiating or declining the prosecution of the president for obstruction of justice under the principles of federal prosecution, and that the substantive advice and analysis contained therein were provided to the attorney general to assist him in making that determination. And I, I mean, you could just hear the the... Uh, the disbelief dripping in that opinion. <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh, what did you say? Did you reply uh, saying that what you meant to say was this when you meant this? No, you doubled down and said you meant it. And that, please. Now, Judge Jackson then addresses the Department of Justice taking issue with her observation in her, you know, in her decision about the memo not being pre-decisional. They, they had a problem with the word pre and pre-decisional. Quote, the motion to stay takes particular issue with the court's observation that there was also a problem with the pre-portion of pre-decisional. <laughs> it points out that a declaration in the record that was not cited in the memorandum opinion, quote, explains that prior to making his decision and sending the letter, the attorney general had received the substance of the advice contained in the memo and reviewed multiple drafts of that memo. And that the substance of the advice contained in the memo did not change in any material way between the time the attorney general <laughs> last received the draft of the memo and the time the attorney general initialed the approval box on the signed form of the memo. So she's like, no. Yeah. And and according to Jackson, that argument depends upon a very cramped representation of what troubled the court. The point was not just that the final version of the bar memo was initialed after the letter went out. The point was that the process of drafting the letter to Congress and process of creating the memo to the attorney general were going on at the same time, involving the same people. So the chronology just did not support the assertion that the memo played any particular role in the development as opposed to the memorialization of the view of the evidence mm -hmm. that the attorney general had already decided he was going to, you know, he was going to announce. Mm -hmm. That's that's basically her way of saying this memo is post hoc and you yeah. initialed it after you sent your letter to Congress. The decision Clearly was already not made. Pre-decision. Yeah. Yep. And she says that even if that were the case, even if that were the case, the court's brief discussion concerning the pre-decisional nature of the document was merely a secondary ground that added strength to the court's decision to reject the deliberative process privilege claim for the reasons detailed in the previous 10 pages. <laughs> so even if the court were to agree that the transmission of a draft version of the bar memo earlier in the weekend made it pre-decisional with respect to the decision of the question on what should the attorney general tell Congress about his prosecutorial judgment, given the potential impact of the report of, you know, the special counsel's judgment, it would not change anything about the ruling in this case. 
which was based on the fact that the Department of Justice could not bring itself to tell the court when it was supposed to what decision-making process was underway. Uh, Yeah, and (laughs) to emphasize that, quote, with respect to the likelihood of success on appeal, it simply does not matter that the decisional process was privileged. The problem was that the DOJ did not choose to assert that as a basis for withholding the document. So the motion to stay does not support a finding of a likelihood of success on the merits on the portion of the ruling related to the deliberative process privilege. Boom. Yeah. So if it's not a likelihood of success on the merits, which you never, you, you don't see that too often, by the way, uh, what about the public interest argument? Okay, so here she says the public interest in disclosure now does not outweigh the DOJ's interest in preserving a privilege that would be lost if the court were to order disclosure, right? This is the, you know, you can't reseal Pandora's box argument, right? Because, her, her analysis, there's a fair amount of information available to members of the public who are interested in the reasoning behind the opinion the Attorney General announced. <laughs> All right, so no go on the merits, and the public interest does not outweigh the irreparable injury. And that's the last prong here. What did she say about the irreparable injury? Yeah, and this is really the the crux. She says, in the absence of a stay, the department would be required to disclose a record it has withheld on the grounds that it's covered by the deliberative process and attorney-client privileges. It is well recognized that requiring the production of potentially privileged material would essentially render any appeal moot. And Justice Marshall that you, you want to say well-established, right? Nothing like going back 200 years, observed that this would constitute irreparable injury. She finishes by saying, the court found that with respect to this particular document, based on these particular declarations, the elements of the privilege had not been established. But it agrees that without a stay, the battle would be lost before it begins. Therefore, this factor weighs heavily in favor of a stay. Ah, I get it. So the stay is granted. Uh, pending Garland's appeal, because basically she's saying, and she's agreeing with Justice Marshall here, um, she's saying, we got to give you a chance to appeal, and if we don't grant you the stay, the appeal is moot, and the toothpaste is out of the tube, so she grants the stay. So it's granted per Garland's appeal, but I got to say, her arguments on the merits make it seem like the Department of Justice might not prevail with their appeal, which makes me wonder why they argued it in the first place. (sighs) You and I, you know, have gone round and round on that. Um, this is this is a very strong signal to the Garland DOJ, right? Um, and and you need this this sort of language because um, typically when uh, a court will agree to stay uh, the enforcement of its decision pending appeal. Um, The courts look, judges are not shy about admitting when something is a close call. Right. Well, they'll say, you know, look, like I ruled X particular way, uh, but there is a strong, you know, minority uh, of case law going the other way. I made this judgment call. It's possible you might win on appeal. Right. Like, um, yeah, I've seen her cite cases against her own arguments in these in that type of case where she's like, hey, I get it because of this and this and this. But here, you know, I think because of this and this and this, right. and I'll let you appeal. But she doesn't even give any devil's advocate in this no. case. And, and and the reason for that is because usually granting injunctive relief, as you know, as I've said from the outset, is a strong indication that the court also thinks that you're 
prevailing on the likelihood of success prong. So because of that, Judge Jackson wanted to be unambiguous on appeal <laughs> to the D.C. Circuit. Hey, you should not read uh, the fact that I'm bending over backwards, uh, you know, to protect this appeal against being mooted. Um, and, and, and let me sidebar on that for a second. Right. I mean, this is crew. This is a public interest organization. This is a. Uh, a mandatory disclosure in response to a FOIA request. What all of that highfalutin legal language and, you know, toothpaste back in the tube is if if there were no stay, then the DOJ would have to turn over the bar memo to crew and crew would publish it. Right. And so it, it would be out there. And so if later on there was some determination of like, oh, man, well, you know, guess you did have a deliberative process privilege. Oops. Sorry about that. Yeah. 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 And it's it's almost like she's saying, all right, you know what? I here's the nine thousand reasons I disagree with your argument for uh, appeal, uh, but I'm going to let you take a stab at it. Uh, and in order to do that, I can't moot it. And so I have to grant the injunction or the stay. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and again, this, this reveals, I mean, I, I, I think courts, right? <laughs> everybody involved in this process is a lawyer. And everybody who's a lawyer has a special place in their heart for protecting privileged documents. And so, <laughs> you know, that's that that's where I think... Uh, you know, the thumb on the scale comes out. But but uh, but she was 100 percent transparent about uh, mm. how she felt about the other factors. <laughs> now, did the DOJ said they were going to appeal and they argued yeah. their reasons for appeal. So they they didn't say we're going to consider an appeal. Can you give us a stay while we think about appealing? So they can't not appeal. They got to appeal now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Dumb. I, I'm I, sorry. No, That's just the wrong decision, man. I, 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 I've, I've given my best, uh, you know, kind of, of good faith steel botting that, uh, you know, you, you want uh, aggressively to protect the uh, deliberative process privilege uh, if you're the DOJ. Uh, but I, this is just this is such an, an, an easy case to go the other way and say, yeah, if it is. You know, if it's pretextual, uh, like like here, and you, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, that there is nothing to stop Garland's DOJ from entering into a stipulation, putting it on the record with the crew plaintiffs that says we think in this case the assertion of privilege was pretext, and the record does not, you know, uh, uh, support uh, continuing to assert in good faith uh, a a a. A deliberative process privilege to shield this particular document from production. Uh, we do not concede anything else, right? Like you could, you could ah. absolutely limit it to just the bar memo uh, and get uh, a better outcome than you know what's going to happen here, which is, I think, very likely that the, that the D.C. Circuit will affirm uh, Judge Jackson's opinion, and then uh, the Supreme Court's not going to be super interested in taking this one mm -hmm. particular case. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting too because, you know, I, I I don't imagine that Merrick Garland's the kind of guy to game stuff out and say, "Hey, let's appeal, even though we know we're going to lose, and we'll just take the hit." That's not how things are done no. generally. No, and again, right, Merrick you Garland was on lose. the D.C. Circuit, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, he's got a no, so it's just an interesting, it's an interesting move. Yeah. Um, 
unless unless Garland didn't make it. Uh, I know his name's not on it, but it. I'm sure it had to go through him. I, it, yeah, I cannot imagine you wouldn't run that up the flagpole. So yeah. Anyway, uh, interesting. I I my beans are on this not at the DC Circuit granting crew their the order and ha- and and DOJ would have to release it. And so then that's probably what you say. Maybe DOJ would come in and say, "All right, but just this and only this." Yeah, and I, take their it, and take their lumps. It, look, the DOJ has more leverage now. Uh, than they will if they lose at the D.C. Circuit, right? Because if you're the crew plaintiffs, and again, um, I know a lot of the folks over there, but Norm Eisen was a former partner of mine when we were both at Zuckerman Spader, right? Uh, he's an exceptionally good lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, But you still, as the plaintiffs, you would rather have the relief than, you know, spin the wheel on appeal, right? Like, even if you think your argument is stronger, you've got to say, you know, there's a non-zero chance that, you know, we we draw a bad panel and we lose at the D.C. Circuit. Um, And so uh, the DOJ has the highest amount of leverage right now to say, look, we'll we'll give you what you want, but you're going to have to curtail that. You know, we're going to we're going to enter a stipulation that is uh, narrowly confined to the facts. If they lose on appeal, um, then crew, I, they, they have no incentive to to enter into a stipulation. They're just like, yeah, no, uh, we're, we're going to we, our stipulation is we want you to follow the court's order. Yeah, right. well, maybe the maybe the stipulation prior to an appeal is the way to go. Then yeah. uh, I think that'd be the best way for the DOJ to save face since there's more than a non-zero chance that they would lose this on appeal. Yep. And they would definitely lose it on an en banc. Yeah. Uh, so, yep. uh, you know, that. That's the way I would go, but I'm not in charge of the world. I know we have (laughs) individuals who work at DOJ who listen to both of our shows uh, and who listen to this show. So, um, you know, uh, if if you're listening and you know who I'm talking to, uh, maybe uh, maybe knock on some doors and make that suggestion. Yeah. And also demurs testify. Okay, just testify. Um, We're going to. We're going to get to that. that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but but first, we're going to be right back with our buddy Adam Klasfeld from Long Crime. And he's the host of uh, the Objections podcast. And uh, he's he's got some a, a really, really great just a just a fun romp, hour and a half long romp from the bench against one of these cracking lawyers that you're going to want to listen to. So uh, we'll be right back with Adam. Stick around. And uh, it's good. You don't want to miss it. Hi friends, Andrew Torres here, and this portion of the podcast is sponsored by Monk Pack. It is really hard to find truly delicious, healthy snacks. Usually, you know, the healthier they are, the worse they taste. But that's why I love Monk Pack. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain less than one gram of sugar, two to three grams net carbs. They're only 150 calories, and they actually taste amazing. They're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle and the perfect snack for anyone who wants to eat better, cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. The Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars have a perfect balance of sweet and salty, a crunch from the whole nuts and seeds, but still manage to be soft and chewy. They're really good. They come in delicious flavors like caramel sea salt, sea salt dark chocolate, and peanut 
peanut butter dark chocolate. So my favorite flavor is the caramel sea salt for obvious reasons. It's really, really good. And since they're packed with protein, they're filling, they're satisfying. It's the perfect quick snack to indulge your sweet tooth without, you know, that much guilt. So in addition to being keto friendly, they are uh, gluten-free, plant-based, and uh, they have no soy, trans fats, sugar, alcohols, or artificial colors. So, you know, if you have a challenging diet, probably a good fit for you. I am seriously obsessed with these bars right now. Probably more than I should to make sure I'm always fully stocked. I signed up for a subscription to my favorite flavors, which saves me 10% on every order and ships them to me automatically. Getting these delicious treats delivered to me on a regular basis has been a game changer in my effort to try and eat healthier. So try it for yourself. You'll see we have a special deal. You get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code cleanup at checkout. Monk Pack is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. So to get started, go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com. Select any product, then enter the code CLEANUP at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. That's Monk Pack. It's delicious, nutritious food you can count on. And uh, we want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, Today, Andrew and I are joined by senior reporter at Law & Crime and host of the Objections podcast, Adam Klasfeld. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk to you today because of a really (laughs) hilarious, mm, I'm just going to go ahead and call it a bench slap, regarding uh, (laughs) a lawsuit that has to do with the Major League Baseball All-Star game being moved. Can you give us a little background on this? It's actually a long, sustained, hour-long bench slap that was delivered recently in this case (laughs) with the MLB. What basically happened is a group going by the name of the Job Creators Network was suing over the decision of the Major League Baseball to pull the All-Star game from Atlanta. And they fashioned a federal lawsuit out of it. alleging that this somehow violated equal protection, that this uh, intimidated the people of Georgia, all of these theories as to why they could essentially gin up a federal lawsuit uh, to stop the All-Star game from being moved from Atlanta in protest to the uh, the voting legislation there that uh, had wide new voting restrictions so, so i'm assuming their argument hearing. was the i'm assuming their their argument was that they they, uh, they were violating their federal constitutional right to enjoy the major league baseball all-star game in their city <laughs> that was uh, the long and the short of it but you know into the details they offered a number of theories that were systematically skewered by u.s district court judge Valerie Caproni. And one of the uh, theories that they put forward was this violates equal protection. Uh, Now, the equal protection that they stated, uh, you know, if you state an equal protection claim, you have to claim that you belong to a protected class. And uh, there wasn't a racial class, it wasn't a gender class, it was the people of Georgia class. So, Judge Caproni essentially asked, what precedent do you have for the proposition that the people of Georgia are a protected class? So the lead attorney for this job creators network 
is a man named Howard Kleinhandler. Now he was, <laughs> you might recognize the name if you were following the post-election craziness, uh, the essentially the Kraken litigation. He yeah. was one of the attorneys involved in the Kraken lawsuits by Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood, and the rest to overturn elections in key states. Uh, the Kraken team uh, sought to overturn the election in Michigan, in Georgia, in uh, Arizona, and in Wisconsin. In any event, yep. there, there, there are, in fact, sanctions uh, hearings pending, uh, sanctions uh, pending uh, against uh, Kleinhandler and uh, Sidney Powell in the Wisconsin case. Uh, Governor Tony Evers there asked for attorney's fees in connection with uh, how meritless that case was and uh, the, the way in which the arguments were presented and litigated, right? They, they cited, you know, data from in, uh, counties that aren't in Wisconsin and, you know, causes of action that were not uh, capable of being pled in federal court. It's, um, it's been fun. It's been a wild ride. Oh, absolutely. And to just uh, jump on that particular point, there have been a number of sanctions motions filed in pretty much most jurisdictions where these Kraken lawsuits were filed. Uh, the city of Detroit has sought uh, very strong sanctions up to and including disbarment of multiple Kraken attorneys. And that's currently going on uh, in the Michigan litigation. There's also bar complaints, now not against Kleinhandler in particular in that case, uh, but against Kraken co-counsel in that jurisdiction. So yeah. he's, so this attorney who was affiliated with that offensive was essentially leading the charge uh, to go and try to get the All-Star game back in Atlanta. And Judge Caproni wasn't having it. And she wasn't having her <laughs> full hour uh, and change. Um, so what, what was his answer when the judge asked, uh, how, how do you, uh, what do you mean the people of Georgia are a protected class? Did he even have an argument? So he went and compared it to something that actually is an equal protection claim. He said, if a pizzeria decided not to serve black customers uh, and Judge Caproni shot back, they said, yes, that would be true because you would be discriminating on the basis of race. What do you have to support that the people of Georgia are uh, a protected class? And so he pointed to cases about a political affiliations. And she said, again, that's political affiliations. He didn't have an answer. And every time yeah. he tried to put forward an evasion, the judge just kept uh, uh, just withering examination. Just to kind of like put this into perspective, this was uh, about an hour and a half, hour 45 minute hearing. The first hour of it was entirely dedicated to grilling this lawyer. By the time she was through essentially in interrogating him, uh, it was time to question the attorneys for the MLB and the union. 
they were there for a couple of minutes apiece. <laughs> they said, essentially, judge, you stole my thunder. <laughs> they, there was really nothing to be said. You know, they realized coming up after this brutal interrogation of this Job Creators Network lawyer and this Kraken lawyer that their best strategy at this point was to not say anything, you know. I, I I, I have often, uh, uh, I, the situation doesn't arise very often, but uh, the opportunity to say, Your Honor, we're happy to submit on the briefs <laughs> is, uh, you know, typically the way in which you say, I, I, I don't want to accidentally say something that makes things worse. For yeah, absolutely. <laughs> They're going real well for us. <laughs> um, did, does, does Klein Endler have any experience in MLB? Like, why? I think I know the answer to the question, but why would Job Creators Network hire him in the first place? Not doesn't have a great uh, batting average, you know, uh, in terms of uh, cases. Won, I mean, this one was so. a swing and a miss, as it were. Uh, you know, I mean, it seems that this was a very nakedly political effort. I mean, at the end of the day, one of the arguments that he even put forward was that allowing the legislation to come under challenge would hurt Georgia democracy because this voting integrity legislation is so good that if the league were allowed to put public pressure that would somehow amend it, Georgia democracy would be damaged. The, you know, the judge pointed out that's so far afield from this case. This, the case right. isn't about is this a good law or a terrible law? Uh, the case is about whether it was illegal for the league to take that action. So that he would raise it. I, I will say that at least that argument, I can, I understand it, um, <laughs> which was a far cry from a lot of uh, previous uh, elite strike force Kraken arguments I've, I've read. It, mm -hmm. It's completely wrong, but I understand it, at least, I have to say. <laughs> well, it's a sort of thing. It, whether it was strictly comprehensible, um, the, the judge absolutely found that there was just, it wasn't relevant to the case. And the, the fact of the matter was, it was an argument that was putting forward their political ideas. And I think that goes to your uh, point earlier that, uh, Andrew, that this was essentially he's being tapped to advance this uh, political idea of the case, that they want to uh, defend these voting restrictions and they're using it through the vehicle of the MLB to make that kind of broader point. But it was yeah. very, very frustrating to the judge. And you could hear her frustration throughout the hearing. I mean, she was raising her voice. At one point, she just interjected, "Oh, for God's sakes!" You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's never a good sign. Yeah, I, it. I mean, it. It seems like this is really combining the the PR aspect of this case is really combining sort of the right wing's two favorite talking points right now. Number one, uh, we need laws to you know protect against imaginary voter fraud, and number two, that you know any kind of social pushback and the the social pushback against the the Georgia laws has has I think been 
extensive has certainly uh, has has crossed over through sort of the the middle of America, right? Like the 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 political center. I, I think I think that you know the folks left defending this are really the you know the small minority of Republicans who benefit from it. Uh, and then to characterize anything pushing back in a social way, right? To to stigmatize it as part of cancel culture. And, oh and, yeah, the whole know. cancel culture <laughs> argument. Hey. Uh, Adam, were there any 1A arguments here to be made? Uh, like, I mean, that seems to be a very big pushback against the idea of cancel culture is that private industry has the right basically to refuse service to anybody. You know, that's that's their 1A. That's kind of a 1A thing. Was there or was this the, the situation where the, the lawyers, like you said, for for baseball and the unions were like, eh, you're doing a fine job, judge. You don't need our input at all. <laughs> In fact, one of the few things that a lawyer for the MLB said was uh, beyond saying essentially that the judge stole his thunder, that you covered all the points that I wanted to make, including a surprise point about the First Amendment. Uh, <laughs> and and you're, you're right on the money right there, that essentially, uh, just as someone has a First Amendment right to uh, criticize or support a piece of legislation, the MLB has the right to come out against the legislation. That's their First Amendment right as a company. Um, but the judge so thoroughly made that point for them, uh, they just went out and reminded the judge that, by the way, we continue to have our First Amendment rights, and thank you for acknowledging <laughs> that in your withering cross-examination of my atmosphere. All right, so I'm thinking like a judge. I like it. Uh, we'll, get you, we'll get you on the federal bench yet. Nah, that's all right. Um, so so uh, Job Creators Network has really said two substantive things after the hearing. The, the first uh, is... Uh, completely disingenuous they've said well you know this is uh this is a technical loss on standing that mlb did not win on the merits um i i, I don't know if you want to address that a, a little because we well, that about sounds how, familiar with you the, know, the, the same thing that they said with the election lawsuits it never even got to the merits yeah. because our stupid bullshit was such bullshitty shit that we yeah. never even got uh, to the merits of the meat of the case yeah. <laughs> that's Right. Then they said that about, you know, 100, 107 page opinion from Pennsylvania. That What do you think? It just says, you know, you have no standing a la, you know, all work and no play <laughs> makes Jack a dull boy over and over again. No. Yeah. But but Adam, go ahead. Well, you know, as you both just acknowledged, the this is very much uh, a post-election talking point that after all of these cases, failed on procedure and some of them on the merits. Uh, there was this talking point, point that came up that, oh, the merits were never considered. Uh, you know, it, it's one thing to even suggest that standing is, um, you know, minor procedural point. Your basic right to sue is probably something that seasoned attorneys should think of in having a strong argument before losing on that ground in federal court. Um, this lawsuit, basically, the, what the hearing, in, in calling it a minor uh, defeat, you know, I'll just quote the judge again. Uh, she said that to call the lawsuit weak and muddled is an understatement. 
<laughs> though this particular ruling was on an issue of will she issue a, an injunction? She didn't. It's hanging by a thread, essentially. I mean, yeah. the, the judge read them the riot act. The writing is on the wall. Uh, the suit isn't formally dismissed. Uh, she said, if you wish to continue that uh, in, in your effort with the lawsuit, um, apparently thinking after the withering defeat that they suffered, they might not want to do that. Uh, we'll schedule a hearing for July. So uh, I, I think they're, you know, they're, they're spinning their defeat, which was rather decisive. And, uh, you know, we will see what happens uh, in terms of what goes on going forward but uh it looks it certainly looks right now that it's hanging by a thread uh and the next stop is the dismissal phase yeah i mean and it seems well, like uh like in some of the election lawsuits that merits were addressed uh in that ooh. scathing hour and a half <laughs> back and forth uh merits were addressed but you know like you said and andrew you've you've said this before too there's an order of operations and shit you got to consider when you, you know when you're just when a judge is deciding about the merits of, or the the jurisdiction or the standing of a lawsuit you got to go standing jurisdiction etc cetera, etc cetera. you got to go through all the stuff but in a lot of those election lawsuits a lot of the judges were like even if you had standing and jurisdiction you're still really dumb. And that seems to have also happened here. So it seems like the merits were addressed, even though technically not. Right. I mean, the, the judge made very clear that there were, there was a long list of defects that the lawsuit had and standing was one of them. Uh, the, the, the mere right to sue in federal court was something that they failed on. And besides that, there their uh, equal protection claims didn't fly in her court. The claim that, you know, they said that the people of Georgia, they said that uh, the league was intimidating folks on the law. So the judge pressed them, who's being intimidated? And wouldn't back down on, on that point. And there was no really clear answer on this whole question of alleged intimidation. You know, I've been covering hearings for more than a decade in federal court, uh, and some of them are pretty lacerating. This this ranks high on that list. <laughs> well, and that and the, the the next question that that comes to mind is timing, right? The the All Star Game is scheduled for July thirteenth in Colorado. Um, you you said that you know sort of next on the agenda is. Uh, you know, the, the, the trial court's going to set a, another hearing uh, for uh, resolving the, the uh, some of the outstanding be after it's moved to dismiss. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, it JCN, I mean, it kind of gets into the second uh, point from the JCN press release, which was uh, and here I'll, I'll I'll read from it. It's it's. Uh, I'll let that speak for itself. Quote, the judge's disappointing ruling is just one strike against us and we're still up to bat looking to appeal our case to the Second Circuit or directly to the Supreme Court. Um, so uh, the directly to the Supreme Court sounds sounds like nonsense. Uh, but I mean, is there is there any realistic opportunity that they're going to get a stay uh, of, of this opinion and and somehow 
get heard by the Second Circuit before July? Well, the whole thing that this is one strike against us reminds me of the old Monty Python meme of, you know, the knight who's being utterly uh, <laughs> torn <laughs> apart and said it's only a, a scratch. Uh, <laughs> you know, there there is quite a long factual <laughs> record and well excuse me a, a long transcript record from this hearing and all of what the federal judge found defective about this lawsuit uh, assuming that jcn thinks that uh the federal appeals court are going to find differently on all of the many grounds they don't see a meritorious lawsuit here uh i i think that to, to say that it's a long shot is probably an I, I, as well. I'd like to see a briefing file that just says, I'm invincible, and then the, the MLB can respond with, you're a loony. And I think that I would be very happy with that. Um, wow, yeah, and this is we're so close to this being moot anyway. Um, that's just absolutely fascinating. I appreciate you. Uh, first of all, congratulations on sitting through one of the most <laughs> fiery hearings that you've got to cover over the last decade. But I appreciate you coming on and sharing it with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. Everybody, check out the Objections podcast with Adam Klassfeld. Adam, I appreciate your time. Hi, friends. Andrew here for Clean Up on Aisle 45. Remember when telehealth was a nice idea, something that seemed convenient but not necessary? Now it's the norm, and many of us can't imagine going to a doctor's office right now. Thankfully, there's a practical and affordable way to take control of your health and get personalized care from the comfort of your home. SteadyMD Primary Care is your personal doctor online. It's telehealth done right. You start by taking a quiz to get matched with a licensed primary care physician who understands your lifestyle and your health needs. Next, you have a one-hour appointment with your doctor to start a real relationship. After that, your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone, or video chat. Unlike other services, this isn't a random doctor on call. Each SteadyMD doctor has a limited number of patients, so they have time to listen and give you the personal attention you deserve. I actually found their quiz to be fun and super informative, and I love my match, catered just to me. I felt immediately comfortable and confident in my primary care physician. SteadyMD Primary Care can help you get and stay healthy, manage chronic conditions and concerns, reduce stress, lose weight, sleep better, feel better, boost your immunity, and much, much more. All from the comfort of your home. Skip the waiting room and the germs. Prescriptions are sent directly to your home or to your local pharmacy. Get all of your medical records in one place and get unlimited access to your doctor for only $99 per month. With no additional visit fees or co-pays, SteadyMD will even help you understand and get the most out of your health insurance, but insurance is not required. SteadyMD Primary Care is now accepting members of all ages in all 50 states. Check out their website and read testimonials like this one from Jenny, SteadyMD member, who says, I love that my SteadyMD doctor actually cares about my goals, takes the time to listen, and truly wants to help me be well, not just talk to me when I'm sick. Plus, I can talk to him from the comfort of my own home. Go to SteadyMD.com slash cleanup to take the free quiz and see which doctor is a perfect fit for you. That's SteadyMD.com slash cleanup. There's no risk and no long-term commitment to get started. That's SteadyMD.com slash cleanup. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back from the break. This is Cleanup on Aisle 45 on Monday. The Biden administration announced that it supports H.R. 256, which is Representative Barbara Lee's bill to repeal the 2002 authorization for the use of military force, AUMF. That was the basis for the Iraq war. Remember this old thing? Mm -hmm. 
The House also voted to repeal the AUF, uh, the AUMF in 2019 and again in 2020, but those bills never saw the light of day because, you know, Turtle Dick Mitch. The AUMF provides a legal basis for the president unilaterally to order military actions pursuant to the 1973 War Powers Act, right? Normally, Congress has to approve all the going to war, but now the president can unilaterally do it based on the AUMF. Yes. And this is a big deal, right? Obama didn't support repeal. Um, the, the 2002 AUMF didn't just authorize us to go into Iraq. It says that, quote, the president is authorized to use the armed forces of the United States as he determines to be a necessary to be necessary and appropriate in order to defend the national security of the United States against the continuing threat posed by Iraq. Right. So really, really broad language. That language was used recently, for example, by the Trump administration in January of 2020, if you remember this, as justification for the drone strike used to assassinate Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, which was which, of course, was something that Mike Pompeo had been internally lobbying for for months. Mm, yeah, that's true. Uh, a repealing the 2002 AUMF gained steam this year as part of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party's push to rein in presidential war powers after Biden ordered an airstrike on Iran-backed militias in Syria in February in retaliation for militia attacks on U.S. personnel in Iraq. Although it's important to note that the Biden administration did not cite the 2002 AUMF as legal justification for the strike. Instead, it argued that it fell under the president's inherent constitutional authority to defend U.S. personnel. Yeah. And, and, and it's also important to note that even if we get rid of the 2002 AUMF, uh, in addition to that inherent constitutional authority assertion of powers, uh, the 2001, right, the post 9-11 AUMF remains in force. And that is significantly broader in scope. It says that, mm. quote, the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on 9-11 or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations or persons. Oh, why couldn't we use it against Ivanka? Didn't she have something <laughs> going on with the Iraqi Defense Force? Uh, all right. It's not so too the late. 2000, <laughs> the 2001. Oh, by the way, it's so nice to see her not on the oh. G7 stage, by the way. So that, that 2001 AUMF was invoked 18 times by Bush, uh, Bush administration, 21 times by the Obama administration, and at least twice by Trump, including his justification for the 2019 occupation of Syrian oil fields. Altogether, the AUMF has provided the legal justification for military action in 14 different countries. And if you're wondering how tenuous, how the tenuous chain of, of links works, it goes like this. The 2001 AUMF authorizes, quote, appropriate force against those organizations that plan committed or aided in 9-11, meaning al-Qaeda. So a 2009 Department of Justice guidance memo used the phrase al-Qaeda and associated or affiliated forces, which then became the go-to verbiage used for invoking the 2001 AUMF against groups like ISIS, yeah. for example, al-Qaeda and associated or affiliated forces. So... That's a DOJ guidance memo. Boy, they sure like to use those. <laughs> they sure do. Look, <laughs> this is one of those legal and political stalemates that it's hard to see how the end game is going to play out, right? So both Republicans and Democrats agree that the 2001 AUMF is outdated, but predictably, they've been unable to agree on a replacement for that uh, that would impose 
more stringent limits on, say, time, geography and or types of forces. Right. Like, you, you know, we we read sections of that authorization and it just says, yeah, anything the president wants to do anything about anybody that's ever been connected to Al Qaeda. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but then that sort of just completely steamrolls the constitutional kind of, thing yeah. that, that says, you know, Congress does that. Yeah. So Republicans, somewhat predictably, have argued that we shouldn't repeal the 2002 AUMF until a replacement for the 2001 AUMF is authorized so as, you know, not to hamstring us in the war on terror because, you know, that. Um, but of course, they also don't agree on language for the narrow replacement for 2001 AUMF. So, um, you know, it, 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 this is going to be a stare down and we're going to continue to keep an eye on the situation. Um, but 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 I don't want to lose track. Like we went through a lot of the nuance. I, I don't want to lose track of the overall development, which is this is a positive development towards mm -hmm. restricting the president's power to use military force. Does it completely eliminate uh, President Biden's ability to, you know, order drone strikes. It doesn't. Um, but but the fact that President Biden is behind uh, Representative Lee's efforts to curtail his own powers, I think is, again, uh, a, a positive sign. And it is, you know, indication number 9538 that the <laughs> progressive wing of the Democratic Party is having mm -hmm. real influence on this administration. Yes. And rightfully so, as they should. Yeah. Uh, is there a way we could link the Proud Boys to Al-Qaeda so that we oh, could God. <laughs> charge treason for sedition? I don't know. I'm just thinking out. I'd keep those thoughts coming. <clears throat> Can I see Proud Boys? Uh, to uh, somebody, somebody six degrees of Kevin Bacon, please. The Proud Boys, Oath Keepers and Three Percenters to Al-Qaeda. Do that for me. And we can get him for treason. I'm just saying. There That's we it. go. I'm just saying. Uh, all right. <laughs> These are jokes. Everybody, we will be right. I, I am 100% for limiting presidential power wherever we can. Yeah. Because eh, remember the yeah, last four years? We Yeah, we just saw what happens when you have an authoritarian who doesn't care about respecting norms. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And let's... there will be more. There will be others. Yep. And they might not be as dumb. Yep. So prepare. All right, we'll be right back with the uh, the famous comings and goings block. Everybody stick around, and I'm looking forward to it. Andrew, this is a good one. <laughs> I'm Greg Oliar. Four years ago, I stopped writing novels to report on the crimes of Donald Trump and his associates. In 2018, I wrote a best-selling book about it, Dirty Rubles. In 2019, I launched Prevail, a bi-weekly column about Trump and Putin. President Putin was extremely strong and powerful. Spies. Active measures. Actively meropriatia in the language of the KGB. Mobsters. And uh, Donald Trump obviously does a lot of construction. And so many traitors. Over the last two years that I've been here, I've been accused of all different types of things. And uh, all of those things have turned out to be false. Alternative facts. I drank beer with my friends. Almost everyone did. Sometimes I had too many beers. Sometimes others did. I liked beer. Trump may be gone, but the damage he wrought will take years to fully understand. The best is yet to come! Join me and a revolving crew of contributors and guests as we try to make sense of it all. This is Prevail. Welcome back, everybody, and it is time, as we hinted before the break, for our favorite segment, Comings and Goings. And, whoo, boy, we got we got a couple different uh, important goings going on today. Mm, yes, yes. And so for some background information, 
News emerged last week that the Justice Department had secretly subpoenaed Apple, and then we found out about Microsoft, yep. for metadata from House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff and another Democratic member of the panel, uh, Rep. Eric Swalwell, Swalls, Biggie Swalls, <laughs> in 2018, February 6, 2018, as, as their committee was investigating Trump's ties to Russia. Schiff at the time was the top Democrat on the panel, which was led by Republicans, so he was the ranking member. The records of at least 12 people connected to the House Intelligence Panel were eventually shared with the Justice Department by Apple and after the subpoena was issued in 2018. Uh, and those people included aides, staffers, former aides, and family members. One was a kid. One was a minor. Yeah. The subpoena requested information on 73 different phone numbers and 36 email addresses, according to Apple. That's just the Apple portion. Um, it also included a non-disclosure order that prohibited the company from notifying any of the people. And and, and, and this has really gone kind of underreported. It was renewed three times. Right. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, not just uh, information gathering in February. Presumably there's like a 90 day limit. So, you know, it's uh, you can do the math and, and realize that that information gathering continued uh, throughout. Uh, most of 2018. Yeah, and the way that I feel like it was it is initially February, March, April, May. I think the first one was 90 days, and then the subsequent two were for a year apiece, mm. and it expired in May of this year, and that's when Merrick Garland let it expire. Yep, yep. So that's how I feel. That's my beans on I, the timeline. I, I I think that's that's plausible, right? Um, but. Uh, elections have consequences, right? So dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we learned on Monday that Trump pulled over John Demers, the Justice Department's top national security official, will be resigning from his position in light of these revelations. And he'll be out by the end of next week. So bye bye. <laughs> mm, yes. Bye bye. Now, uh, Demers, who was sworn in a few weeks after the subpoena for the Democrats records, is one of the few Trump appointees who has remained in the Biden administration. Supposedly, he was already planning for weeks to leave the Department of Justice by the end of June. Uh, so the, the there's a little bit of contradictory reporting from this yeah. morning and this afternoon, uh, but apparently there, it's not connected <laughs> yeah. to, to the... Uh, to the, you know, the the issues going on with the, the former Department of mm. Justice mm. subpoenaing these records. Although uh, I did speak and I know you've covered this extensively on your show. And I talked to uh, Frank Figaluzzi yesterday about this. And we, we sort of concluded that this might have been maybe a Merrick Garland thing where he's like, mm, maybe you should go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm always skeptical of the, well, I was planning on leaving anyway. And, and anyway, I bet those grapes taste just terrible. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and. You know, and Frank actually said that, okay, he's, I think June 25th is his last day. And uh, people were concerned that, you know, once you leave the Department of Justice, then the inspector general who's investigating this issue now uh, and and Gerald Nadler in the in the House Judiciary has said that they are officially opening an investigation into this and they have unilateral subpoena power. But the inspector general does not. Once you are no longer an employee of the Department of Justice, they can't compel people to testify. But Frank and I sort of feel that this guy would probably cooperate. I I, that will I mean, let's let's see. I think I think that that's probably a, a, a depends on guess. how bad it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's why <laughs> that's why I wasn't taking a position. But yeah, um, I mean, if he's like, nope, nope, not going to. Nope. Yeah. Uh, then, then we know we can infer an really awful lot. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Then we so. then we go. All right, Nadler, subpoena the shit out of him, please. Yep. So uh, we also got, uh, as you alluded, uh, a public announcement from uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, who said that 
political or other improper considerations must play no role in any investigative or prosecutorial decisions. Um, and uh, noted that, uh, again, as you pointed out, the uh, the department's inspector general, that's uh, Michael Horowitz, has already launched an investigation uh, at uh, the uh, request of Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, whom Garland instructed to evaluate and strengthen the existing policies and procedures for obtaining records of the legislative branch with an eye towards uh, what he called, quote, full weight accorded to separation of powers concerns moving forward, end of quote. Mm, yeah. And uh, Dag Monaco has wasted no time. Pursuant to her request, like, like you said, Justice Department's Inspector General Horowitz already launched a probe into the matter. He said he would examine whether the data subpoenaed by the Justice Department and turned over by Apple followed department policy and whether any such issues or investigations were, quote, based upon improper considerations. Hint, they were. So <laughs> <laughs> we bid a fond bye-bye to John Deemers. And, and question for you, Andrew, um, this abuse of power, I mean... If this is what occurred, uh, because we're already we're also hearing that that Don McGahn, his own White House counsel, uh, had had uh, and his wife had records subpoenaed. It doesn't it. I mean, first of all, I want everyone to know that the Horowitz investigation is going to take months. Yeah. So don't every day. I don't want to see where are you? Where are you now? Nothing's going to happen. <laughs> um, it takes months for for a good inspector general uh, investigation to to go through the things. Can can an inspector general make criminal referrals? I know that they can get prosecutorial, but don't usually have full prosecutorial stuff. They don't really have subpoena powers, but they can compel they can compel current DOJ employees to testify, but not former. I mean, there's all sorts of special things that we have to remember because Barr and Rosenstein and Sessions, who are the top three pigs in this trough, uh, are no longer Department of Justice employees. And they're just they're going to say, no, I'm not I'm not answering your questions. Yeah, that is that is exactly right on how that power is circumscribed. You are also exactly right on sort of the minimum timeline. Uh, and um, if the investigation from internal memoranda, because that because that's essentially, um, you know, what Horowitz is going to be able to uncover. Right. Like objective evidence still in existence at the DOJ. Um that may be inconclusive, right? Like this may be a situation where all of the high level stuff was done, you know, via phone call. Right. And so yeah. it may be, um, you know, that we get uh, calendars that, you know, that say, oh, look, like, yeah, here's here's a, you know, 1142 call from Barr to Rosenstein. Right. Here's an 1144 call from Rosenstein back to, Barr, right? you know, it, it it's not hard to figure out when uh you know mm. that that kind of stuff might have taken place but, but although yeah go ahead I, I do i do want to mention though because this occurred to me today uh bill barr whipped up a pretty dumb memo <laughs> in 2020 saying that uh any investigations into presidential or vice presidential candidates have to get express written permission for me to go for i have to be notified i bill barr have to be notified so i don't understand if he was the one prolonging these gag orders or knew about these investigations, he's saying he doesn't recall them. Uh, but he asked everyone to tell him personally if they were having Swalwell was a presidential candidate. Yep. And then even if it's not him, then congressional candidates had to tell their 
uh, relevant department heads, like the head of National Security Division, which was Deemers, right? Uh, for example, that's just one. There are several department heads. But to, to say that it didn't go up any higher than the prosecutor who got the grand jury to issue the subpoenas is dumb. Yeah, I, it, it, that is exactly right. And, I, you know, boy, wouldn't that just be poetic justice if this comes around and bites Bill Barr in the ass based on, you know, his, his, <laughs> his own paper trail in, in which he had to say, you know, any presidential case. He meant Trump. But uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, it, it, you are exactly correct that, um, you know, that all, all roads very clearly lead to Bill Barr on this one. Mm. Yeah. And this is a good reason to clean, clean house over yep. at DOJ. And I think that this particular inspector general investigation is going to do it. So we've got some hellos, don't we? We do. Um, so Deemers will be temporarily replaced by Mark Lesko, uh, who is the acting U S attorney for the Eastern district of New York. Uh, Biden's official pick for the job, Matthew Olson, uh, that's a pick that requires uh, the advice and consent of the Senate. So he's got to get Senate approval. Olson is an executive at Uber. Um, He has previous former experience in the Justice Department. He uh, has served as director of the National Counterterrorism Center and as general counsel for the National Security Agency. So uh, Congrats to Lesko and, a, and an anticipatory hello to Matthew Olson. Now, with the guy coming out of the Eastern District of New York, do you think that this might have some sort of negative impact on the current Eastern District of New York there in Brooklyn, their investigation into uh, Ukraine and Rudy's buddies? I, I don't think so. I don't I wouldn't read it that way. I, I, I okay. think he can wear two hats. And uh, okay. it's just an issue of getting somebody that has uh, the appropriate level of national security experience right because i mean you know that's not that's not always in a prosecutor's toolkit right there well ratcliffe yeah. isn't doing anything i mean he's got <laughs> tons of national security uh, uh, i can't even do it with a straight no face. i All know right. you tried i did let's go on i love this story because we're also bidding a fond bye-bye to an entire department in this case the orwellian named voice victim of immigration crime engagement division of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, ICE, which was used by white nationalist asshole Stephen Miller to gin up crime stats purporting to show crimes by illegal immigrants. He called the Biden decision to close voice a moral stain on the conscience of our nation, which is all you need to know, that it was 100% the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Voice will be replaced by Vessel. The Victims Engagement and Services Line, which is a more comprehensive and inclusive victim support system offered by ICE that will, quote, ensure services are offered to all victims, regardless of the immigration status of the victim or the perpetrator. Acting ICE Director Tay Johnson said, as a federal law enforcement agency, ICE is committed to serving all victims of crime. ICE has never and will never ask those seeking help about their immigration status. Look, like that that there's a lot of trust left to repair yeah. there. I'm not suggesting the statement will do it, but um you know, that 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 does represent a, a, a yeah, real change. Yeah, I, I just see like ice standing out on the corner being like, "But wait, come back. Hey, no, we're cool now. You can tell us about your crimes." Anyway, uh welcome to Vessel. Uh, consistent with that mandate, the new vessel will also be uh, offer expanded services, including guidance on available U and T visa resources. So, you know, doing positive stuff. Yeah. And finally, uh, in news that broke just as we were about to record today's episode, 
Judge Kentonji Brown-Jackson was confirmed, 53-44, to the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, making her the first woman of color on that court, which, Andrew, you've described as basically the AAA team for the Supreme Court. And we know Biden promised to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. So if we can just Breyer, get Breyer to resign uh. before 2022... <laughs> We could have Kentanji Brown on the Supreme Court. Uh, we 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 could. Uh, uh, by the way, very nice baseball analogy. Look, we we have profiled <laughs> Judge Jackson before. She is a rock star, um, and I guess the fact that three whole Republicans voted to confirm her—Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and somewhat oddly Lindsey Graham—I uh, guess now we can look forward to another thrilling op-ed from Joe Manchin as to what swell human beings Republicans are and how bipartisanship isn't dead. Oh, right. As handwritten for him by his pals over at the Commerce yeah. uh, <laughs> Commerce Department and the Cokes. Okay. And I don't want to be a buzzkill. Uh, uh, I don't want to buzzkill this historic nomination uh, because the Jackson is incredible, yeah. but uh, Biden is still way behind on confirming federal judges. And Mitch McConnell just confirmed in an interview with professional asshat Hugh Hewitt. Oh, God. Dumb, dumb name, too. Oh, I hate that guy. <laughs> that he tends to continue his obstructionist policies of denying Democrats the opportunity to advance judges if Republicans regain control of the Senate in 2022. Let me repeat that. If Republicans gain control of the Senate in 2022, we will not get any Supreme Court picks. He confirmed it, it, if you understand how to read Mitch McConnell, which I do. He said, we'd have to wait and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, further noting, though, that it would be highly unlikely that a Republican Senate would hold a hearing, let alone vote for a Biden nominee in all of 2024. Quote, in fact, no, I don't think either party, if it controlled or if it were from, different from the president, would confirm a Supreme Court nominee in the middle of an election. I, I, yeah, because all of your last year in office is, quote, the middle of an election. But look, we know this is the Mitch McConnell playbook. So uh, make sure you're voting blue in 2022. OK, that's it's yeah. that simple. That's it's that important. It is that yeah. important. Because, uh, yeah, Mitch said that that, that shoving Amy Coney Barrett and not allowing Merrick Garland in the court was the single most important thing he's done yeah. in his political life. He said that. Yeah. They, 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 they have said there are no quiet parts for them to say loud. It is all just loud parts. So mm -hmm. and because of people sitting out yep. and because of voter suppression, yep. uh, we're probably going to lose access to abortion in half of our states next year. <sighs> So, yeah, get let, your marching boots let, on. Let the, right, let the hate flow through you, but let that flow <laughs> to, uh, you know, heading out to the ballot box, supporting candidates, running uh, and, uh, and and being involved in the process. Uh, but um, but if 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 you're upset, if you're demoralized, uh, the answer is, you know, give Joe Biden a Joe Manchin proof Senate. Yeah. And do not give up because that is what the Republicans spend a lot of money trying to get you to do. Absolutely. To be exhausted and exasperated and give up. Take a break. By all means, take a break. I'll, we'll hold we'll hold the baton for you. Uh, but uh, yeah, we gotta we gotta stay in it. We gotta stay in the fight. It's not over. Absolutely. But uh, wonderful show. Thanks again to Adam Classfeld. Ah, from, from that was Long so Crime. much fun. That was great talking baseball. That just what a <laughs> <laughs> what a what a what a numb nuts. That, you know? <laughs> What's oh. that guy's name again? Heidel Kraken. What is it? <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, it's like Klein Heidel. Klein, Klein, it's Klein Handler. Yeah, that guy. Oh, yeah. my God. 
Oh, what a douche. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like... We will be. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I like how it kind of threw Adam when I was like, why would anyone hire this guy? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question, right? It's a right? good question. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Unless he created that whole group himself and just did it to Could file be. his own lawsuit. Could be. Well, uh, I'm sure we're going to have a packed show next week as well. So I just want to thank everybody for, for listening. And I want to thank our patrons for supporting the show, for keeping it going. Yep. Uh, and everybody for for supporting MSW Media and all of our podcasts. We got some great, great content. Go to mswmedia.com. And... Listen to Opening Arguments this week. Listen to Daily Beans. We'll have all the deep dive information for you. And until next week, I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andrew Torres. And this is Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.